0: section fourteen of natural theology by william paley this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twelve comparative anatomy part two three to the mouth adjoins the gullet in this part also comparative anatomy discovers a difference of structure adapted to the different necessities of the animal in brutes because the posture of their neck conduces little to the passage of the aliments. the fibers of the gullet which act in this business run in two close spiral lines, crossing each other. In men, these fibres run only a little obliquely from the upper end of the esophagus to the stomach, into which, by a gentle contraction, they easily transmit the descending morsels. That is to say, for the more laborious deglutition of animals, which thrust their food up instead of down, and also through a longer passage, a proportionably more powerful apparatus of muscles is provided. More powerful not merely by the strength of the fibres, which might be attributed to the greater exercise of their force, but in their collocation, which is a determinate circumstance and must have been original. 4. The gullet leads to the intestines. Here, likewise, as before, comparing quadrupeds with man, under a general similitude, we meet with appropriate differences. The valvulae conniventes, or as they are by some called, the semilunar valves, found in the human intestine are wanting in that of brutes. These are wrinkles or plates of the innermost coat of the guts, the effect of which is to retard the progress of the food through the alimentary canal. It is easy to understand how much more necessary such a provision may be to the body of an animal of an erect posture, and in which consequently the weight of the food is added to the action of the intestine, than in that of a quadruped in which the course of the food from its entrance to its exit is nearly horizontal. But it is impossible to assign any cause, except the final cause, for this distinction actually taking place. So far as depends upon the action of the part, this structure was more to be expected in a quadruped than a man. In truth, it must, in both, have been formed, not by action, but in direct opposition to action and to pressure. But the opposition, which would arise from pressure, is greater in the upright trunk than in any other. That theory, therefore, is pointedly contradicted by the example before us. The structure is found where its generation, according to the method by which the theorist would have it generated, is the most difficult, but, observe, it is found where its effect is most useful. The different length of the intestines in carnivorous and herbivorous animals has been noticed on a former occasion. The shortest, I believe, is that of some birds of prey, in which the intestinal canal is little more than a straight passage from the mouth to the vent. The longest is in the deer kind. The intestines of a Canadian stag, four feet high, measured 96 feet. The intestine of a sheep, unraveled, measures 30 times the length of the body. The intestine of a wild cat is only three times the length of the body. Universally, where the substance upon which the animal feeds is of slow concoction or yields its kile with more difficulty, there the passage is circuitous and dilatory, that time and space may be allowed for the change and the absorption which are necessary where the food is soon dissolved or already half-assimilated, an unnecessary or perhaps hurtful detention is avoided by giving to it a shorter and readier route. 5. In comparing the bones of different animals, we are struck, in the bones of birds, with a propriety which could only proceed from the wisdom of an intelligent and designing creator. In the bones of an animal which is to fly, the two qualities required are strength and lightness wherein therefore do the bones of birds, I speak of the cylindrical bones, differ in these respects from the bones of quadrupeds in three properties. First, their cavities are much larger in proportion to the weight of the bone than in those of quadrupeds. Secondly, these cavities are empty. Thirdly, the shell is of a firmer texture than is the substance of other bones. It is easy to observe these particulars even in picking the wing or leg of a chicken. Now the weight being the same, the diameter, it is evident, will be greater in a hollow bone than a solid one, and with the diameter, as every mathematician can prove, is increased, satiris paribus, the length of the cylinder, or its resistance to breaking. In a word, a bone of the same weight would not have been so strong in any other form, and to have made it heavier would have incommoded the animal's flight. Yet this form could not be acquired by use, or the bone become hollow and tubular by exercise. What appetency could excavate a bone? 6. The lungs also of birds, as compared with the lungs of quadrupeds, contain in them a provision distinguishingly calculated for this same purpose of levitation, namely, a communication, not found in other kinds of animals, between the air vessels of the lungs and the cavities of the body, so that by the intromission of air from one to the other, at the will as it should seem of the animal, its body can be occasionally puffed out. And its tendency to descend in the air or its specific gravity made less the bodies of birds are blown up from their lungs which no other animal bodies are and thus rendered buoyant seven all birds are oviparous this likewise carries on the work of gestation with as little increase as possible of the weight of the body a gravid uterus would have been a troublesome burthen to a bird in its flight the advantage in this respect of an oviparous procreation is that whilst the whole brood are hatched together, the eggs are excluded singly and at considerable intervals. Ten, fifteen, or twenty young birds may be produced in one clutch or covey, yet the parent bird have never been encumbered by the load of more than one full grown egg at one time. Eight. A principal topic of comparison between animals is in their instruments of motion. These come before us under three divisions feet, wings, and fins. I desire any man to say which of the three is best fitted for its use, or whether the same consummate art be not conspicuous in them all. The constitution of the elements in which the motion is to be performed is very different. The animal action must necessarily follow that constitution. The Creator, therefore, if we might so speak, had to prepare for different situations, for different difficulties. Yet the purpose is accomplished not less successfully in one case than the other and as between wings and the corresponding limbs of quadrupeds it is accomplished without deserting the general idea the idea is modified not deserted strip a wing of its feathers and it bears no obscure resemblance to the fore leg of a quadruped the articulations at the shoulder and the cubitus are much alike and what is a closer circumstance in both cases the upper part of the limb consists of a single bone the lower part of two but fitted up with its furniture of feathers and quills It becomes a wonderful instrument, more artificial than its first appearance indicates, though that be very striking. At least the use which the bird makes of its wings in flying is more complicated and more curious than is generally known. One thing is certain, that if the flapping of the wings in flight were no more than the reciprocal motion of the same surface in opposite directions, either upwards and downwards, or estimated in any oblique line, the bird would lose as much by one motion as she gained by the other the skylark could never ascend by such an action as this for though the stroke upon the air by the underside of her wing would carry her up the stroke from the upper side when she raised her wing again would bring her down in order therefore to account for the advantage which the bird derives from her wings it is necessary to suppose that the surface of the wing measured upon the same plane is contracted whilst the wing is drawn up and let out to its full expansion when it descends upon the air for the purpose of moving the body by the reaction of that element. Now the form and structure of the wing, its external convexity, the disposition and particularly the overlapping of its larger feathers, the action of the muscles and joints of the pinions are all adapted to this alternate adjustment of its shape and dimensions. Such a twist for instance or semi-rotatory motion is given to the great feathers of the wing that they strike the air with their flat side, but rise from the stroke slantwise. The turning of the oar in rowing, whilst the rower advances his hand for a new stroke, is a similar operation to that of the feather and takes its name from the resemblance. I believe that this faculty is not found in the great feathers of the tail. This is the place also for observing that the pinions are so set on upon the body as to bring down the wings, not vertically, but in a direction obliquely tending towards the tail which motion, by virtue of the common resolution of forces, does two things at the same time, supports the body in the air, and carries it forward. The steerage of a bird in its flight is effected partly by the wings, but in a principal degree by the tail, and herein we meet with a circumstance not a little remarkable. Birds with long legs have short tails, and in their flight place their legs close to their bodies, at the same time stretching them out backwards as far as they can. In this position, the legs extend beyond the rump and become the rudder, supplying that steerage which the tail could not. From the wings of birds, the transition is easy to the fins of fish. They are both, to their respective tribes, the instruments of their motion. But in the work which they have to do, there is a considerable difference, founded in this circumstance. Fish, unlike birds, have very nearly the same specific gravity with the element in which they move. In the case of fish, therefore, there is little or no weight to bear up. What is wanted is only an impulse sufficient to carry the body through a resisting medium, or to maintain the posture, or to support, or restore the balance of the body, which is always the most unsteady, where there is no weight to sink it. For these offices, the fins are as large as necessary, though much smaller than wings, their action mechanical, their position, and the muscles by which they are moved, in the highest degree convenient. The following short account of some experiments upon fish, made for the purpose of ascertaining the use of their fins, will be the best confirmation of what we assert. In most fish, beside the great fin the tail, we find two pair of fins upon the sides, two single fins upon the back, and one upon the belly, or rather between the belly and the tail. The balancing use of these organs is proved in this manner. Of the large-headed fish, if you cut off the pectoral fins, i.e., the pair which lies close behind the gills, the head falls prone to the bottom. If the right pectoral fin only be cut off, the fish leans to that side. If the ventral fin on the same side be cut away, then it loses its equilibrium entirely. If the dorsal and ventral fins be cut off, the fish reels to the right and left. When the fish dies, that is, when the fins cease to play, the belly turns upwards. The use of the same parts for motion is seen in the following observation upon them when put in action. The pectoral, and more particularly the ventral fins, serve to raise and depress the fish. When the fish desires to have a retrograde motion, a stroke forward with the pectoral fin effectually produces it. If the fish desire to turn either way, a single blow with the tail the opposite way sends it round at once. If the tail strike both ways, the motion produced by the double lash is progressive, and enables the fish to dart forwards with an astonishing velocity. The result is, not only, in some cases, the most rapid, but in all cases, the most gentle, pliant, easy animal motion with which we are acquainted. However, when the tail is cut off, the fish loses all motion and gives itself up to where the water impels it. The rest of the fins, therefore, so far as respects motion, seem to be merely subsidiary to this. In their mechanical use, the anal fin may be reckoned the keel, the ventral fins, outriggers, the pectoral fins, the oars, and, if there be any similitude between these parts of a boat and a fish, observe that it is not the resemblance of imitation, but the likeness which arises from applying similar mechanical means to the same purpose. We have seen that the tail in the fish is the great instrument of motion. Now, in cetaceous or warm-blooded fish, which are obliged to rise every two or three minutes to the surface to take breath, the tail, unlike what it is in other fish, is horizontal, its stroke consequently perpendicular to the horizon, which is the right direction for sending the fish to the top or carrying it down to the bottom. Regarding animals in their instruments of motion, we have only followed the comparison through the first great division of animals into beasts, birds, and fish. If it were our intention to pursue the consideration further, I should take in that generic distinction among birds, the web-foot of waterfowl. It is an instance which may be pointed out to a child. The utility of the web to waterfowl, the inutility to landfowl, are so obvious that it seems impossible to notice the difference without acknowledging the design. I am at a loss to know how those who deny the agency of an intelligent creator dispose of this example. There is nothing in the action of swimming, as carried on by a bird upon the surface of the water, that should generate a membrane between the toes. As to that membrane, it is an exercise of constant resistance. The only supposition I can think of is that all birds have been originally waterfowl and web-footed, that sparrows, hawks, linnets, etc., which frequent the land, have, in process of time and in the course of many generations, had this part worn away by treading upon hard ground. To such evasive assumptions must atheism always have recourse, and, after all, it confesses that the structure of the feet of birds, in their original form, was critically adapted to their original destination. The web feet of amphibious quadrupeds, seals, otters, etc., fall under the same observation. 9. The five senses are common to most large animals, nor have we much difference to remark in their constitution, or much however which is referable to mechanism the superior sagacity of animals which hunt their prey and which consequently depend for their livelihood upon their nose is well known in its use but not at all known in the organization which produces it the external ears of beasts of prey of lions tigers wolves have their trumpet part or concavity standing forwards to seize the sounds which are before them viz the sounds of the animals which they pursue or watch the ears of animals of flight are turned backwards to give notice of the approach of their enemy from behind when he may steal upon them unseen this is a critical distinction and is mechanical but it may be suggested and i think not without probability that it is the effect of continued habit the eyes of animals which follow their prey by night as cats owls etc possess a faculty not given to those of other species namely of closing the pupil entirely the final cause of which seems to be this it was necessary for such animals to be able to descry objects with very small degrees of light this capacity depended upon the superior sensibility of the retina that is upon its being affected by the most feeble impulses but that tenderness of structure which rendered the membrane thus exquisitely sensible rendered it also liable to be offended by the access of stronger degrees of light the contractile range, therefore, of the pupil, is increased in these animals so as to enable them to close the aperture entirely, which includes the power of diminishing it in every degree, whereby at all times such portions and only such portions of light are admitted as may be received without injury to the sense. There appears to be also in the figure and in some properties of the pupil of the eye an appropriate relation to the wants of different animals, in horses, oxen, goats, sheep, The pupil of the eye is elliptical, the transverse axis being horizontal, by which structure, although the eye be placed on the side of the head, the anterior elongation of the pupil catches the forward rays or those which come from objects immediately in front of the animal's face. End of section 14